This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the mom room. It is Tuesday, so that means I'm talking to somebody cool. And today I'm talking with Emily Edwards. She is a registered nurse, and she's the founder of The Good Birth Co., I have wanted to do an episode on birth trauma for so long because I started to realize that it's extremely common. I, you know, being 38 years old, have a lot of friends that have had babies and the number of them that have experienced trauma in one way or another in their labor and delivery experience is shocking to me because... I feel like people don't talk about it enough. And if they do talk about it, they don't mention it in a way that makes it sound like a big deal, if you know what I mean. Often people are met with like, oh, the baby's healthy. Like, let's move on. You know, you should be so happy. And I think that's part of the reason people don't really bring it up. If anything, they'll just tell the story of what happened and move on. But they don't like to explain how much of an impact that experience is having on them in their postpartum period. Because again, it's supposed to be the happiest time of our life and we should be on cloud nine and it's rainbows and it's sunshine. And if you say anything contrary to that, then you feel bad. You feel like you're being judged. You might actually be judged depending on your family and friends. And so a lot of people just stay quiet. And it's interesting to think if somebody got in a car accident or experienced some kind of traumatic event that is outside of labor and delivery, we wouldn't treat it that way as a society. We would ask them if they were getting help, like, do you need to talk to somebody? But when it comes to labor and delivery, it is just dismissed and people don't take it seriously. Emily is on a mission to change that. The Good Birth Co. is a virtual space offering birth experience consulting, processing services, and birth trauma prevention training. So what she does is she offers advocacy training for birth professionals and for people that are partners of people that are going to give birth so that they understand how to advocate properly for them in the healthcare system or wherever you choose to give birth. Emily also shares her own experience with birth trauma. So without further ado, guys, this episode was a long time coming and I'm so happy to finally be able to put it out there. Please welcome Emily Edwards to the mom room. All right. So the first thing I wanted to point out and I wanted to make sure that it was on the recording is that I started using Hailey Bieber's face cream and like the... It's like a face cream that you put on first and then you put on this like top layer that makes you really shiny. And now that I'm recording an episode and I see myself in the camera, I'm like, oh my God, my face is so shiny. And when Hailey Bieber has a shiny, dewy face on Instagram, it looks nice. But I feel like if you're just like a random person in an office, it's not as nice. So I just wanted to get that out there. Funny thing is, literally before we I joined the the call, I was like, I'm so sweaty. Like I have this light sweat layer on my so face. We're both so we're dewy. I, I that's funny. <laughs> not yeah. not because I was using those products though. Totally unrelated. Yes, we're both dewy. So we are both Haley Bieber today. Okay, first thing I wanted to ask is where are you living? Because I know you were in Ottawa, but you moved, correct? Correct. And I am living in the West Indies on an island called Karakou, which is an island that's part of Grenada. So in comparison to about 200 kilometers from Barbados and then uh, Trinidad and Tobago is kind of the next biggest island towards Grenada or like around Grenada. Did you grow up there or what is your connection to that area? 
My husband's family is from Grenada, and he was actually born and raised in the States, and then he came to Canada, but citizenship-wise and heritage, ethnicity, that is where he's from. So we had a pretty cool opportunity, his citizenship here, to be able to purchase a house on the beach and get out of Ontario and take a big slowdown. What has it been like? (sighs) (laughs) Not all highlight reels, that's for sure. But also, it's been incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's been kind of two, almost two years in the making in some capacity. We've talked about it for a long time. But it was kind of like birth and pregnancy, actually. You plan and you plan and you plan. And then when it's time to go, like, it's go time. So my husband actually was in Grenada with our three boys by himself for a month before I got down here because I got stuck in Canada with our dogs. And I lived at my parents for a month with our dogs. And then we all got together. We met up and now we're in our actual home here. So the kids are still not in school yet. So that's a thing that we're working on. You know, I haven't had fast food. There's no fast food here. Coffee is not the same. Lots of little, those things are different, but at the same time, like it's, it's incredible. We have a kilometer to a completely private beach where there are no other humans that are on it at any point in the day, except maybe one of the 8,000 people that live on the island. And we actually have a beach in our backyard too. So it's all of those little things I can do without McDonald's or Burger King for that trade-off. But yeah, it's not for the faint of heart. We don't have hot water. I'm doing laundry by hand. We're a, what? Have a low water. Yeah, we it's a low water island. So we have a we do water harvesting and have a cistern in our house. And we we may eventually get one, but they're really you have to have a special kind of like low, low volume washing machine. And I'm I've got to find someone as well. There's people who like you they'll pick it up and and do it for you too, but we just are still kind of in that settling in phase. I feel like you need an entire Instagram account just to showcase your life and like the lifestyle that you're living now because it's so different from what I'm sure most of your followers are living. Like, do you share any of this stuff? My Instagram account for this specifically is called Caribbean Canine. So Caribbean, like Caribbean and dot K9. There was a reason why I got stuck with the dogs. We also are have a small hobby breeding kennel for Malinois and Dutch Shepherds. So that's, I'm sure you've heard of Eve Rodsky and Unicorn Space kind of in the, the world. Well, dogs are my unicorn space and now I get to do it here. So that's the account that really captures our life. The kids doing, you know, they're learning how to climb trees and pick coconuts. And my one kid wants to learn how to, you know, catch crabs and Yeah, we're trying to document the best we can. And really, like, it sounds really cliche, but honestly, to show friends and family, like, see what we're doing, see what every day looks like, not so much about, like, the growth or the the wow factor in it. Because, like I said, there's, there's a lot that doesn't make the highlight real, too. Where is your family located? In Ottawa? They're actually in Belleville. I was born and raised in Belleville. And so my my sister and my nephew and brother-in-law are there, my parents, my grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody's there. So when we go back, it's easy to to see everyone we need. So you said you had three boys. What are their ages? My oldest will be 11 in a month. My middle is seven and my youngest turned four in February. Okay. And I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody. So what was your transition into motherhood like? And then also, I'm always curious... People that do like content creators or people who start like coaching businesses or anything to try and better the pregnancy, labor, delivery, motherhood experience for people. I'm always curious if they started it after they became a mom or were they doing it previously? So you can explain how you became interested in the birth topic, I guess. If you don't mind, I might kind of inverse those questions so it makes a little more sense for my my journey. I was a birth nerd in high school. I had read Ina May Gaskin's work, you know, by the time I was in grade 10. I was planning on going to midwifery school for university. Like that was my thing. I was totally obsessed with it. And midwifery's 
training is very difficult to get into, specifically in Ontario, especially for high school graduates. They're looking for older people, people who have lived experience or people with at least an undergraduate degree of something else. Not to mention there at the time, there was only three of those programs out there and they took very limited number of students. So needless to say, I went a different route while I was trying to figure that piece out or get something under my belt. So I went into nursing and obviously that's the the solid choice to make. You know, I'm a type A, I'm going to come out with a degree and I'm going to have a job. It's perfect. Between my second and third year, I actually took an independent elective placement through a private company called Work the World. And I traveled to Tanzania and worked in a labor and delivery ward as a student nurse for seven weeks. In that time, I caught 71 babies. And 20 of those were labors I managed completely independently. No physician, no other senior nurse. Like I was the one doing everything as a second year nursing student. And my parents were so afraid I'd never come home in the sense of like I'd fall in love with it and never come back. Like I would just stay there forever and ever. And it was the coolest thing ever. And the mentor I had, this is the nurse midwife that kind of took on students who came. Her name was Sister Shao. And I remember she looked me square in the face and she said, are you here to teach or are you here to learn? And I took a big, giant, deep breath and I swallowed and I said, oh, I am here to learn. And she did everything she could to really, really show me and build my skill set. So I fell in love with the work. But I also realized that going back home and doing work in labor and delivery was going to be really hard because I started to recognize all of the the challenges. And don't get me wrong, Tanzania was highly medicalized as well. They used Pitocin with all of the births. There were lots of episiotomies. There were sutures without freezing. Like there were some really, really crazy things that I saw. I actually fainted the first birth I saw there. I forgot to mention that. Flat on the floor, like fell in like the goo, the amniotic fluid. And then I was like, back up before the placenta was born. (laughs) I was like, I cannot miss this. So it just really, really stuck with me. Like it was changed the way I viewed a lot of things and not just birth, but just myself and the world and our healthcare system here. Because again, when you have to decide if you're going to give someone a, you know, Pitocin injection after they gave birth to hopefully prevent a postpartum hemorrhage or give them lidocaine to freeze them while you suture a episiotomy, those are decisions you don't have to make in Canada as a student nurse. Never. You don't have to make that decision as a staff nurse. And there you, there was no choice. You had to make the call. Because doctors are doing it? No, because we have the resources to use both. So I had, sorry, that would make sense. Like I had one needle oh, okay. per patient and both of those drugs needed to be given through a needle and you can only use it once. And so it was like, okay, how bad is the repair? And do they really need to be frozen or should they have this medication? And again, coming back to kind of our, the way things are happening here, I thought like, you guys have no idea what actual decision-making is in the moment and problem-solving because they've never, ever faced that. But like I said, it just, it really shifted a lot inside of me and resource management when it comes to actual supplies and things like that is kind of a little piece of my heart because of working there. And I'm really considerate and mindful of, you know, how supplies are used. That's a total other tangent, but it really, and so when COVID happened, you know, and everybody started thinking, you know, how are we reusing masks? And I'm like, hey, there's places in the world who have already been dealing with a lot of this stuff and this isn't new. So that would be kind of where I I fell in love with. So I was definitely very interested in this before. Funny thing is I got pregnant about three months after I came home from that trip and I was pregnant throughout my whole third year of nursing. I fought an uphill battle against the department to complete that year successfully and I gave birth to my son I had contractions during my final like clinical placements and I gave birth to him May 17th, which was like the final day of my practicum placements that broke me entirely. To be quite honest, my entrance into motherhood was not as I expected and it shook me. I was really lost. I was someone who knew how to do everything well. I got gold stars when I was, you know, 10 years old. Our vice principal said she wanted to be like me when she grew up. Like I was that person. And 
I had a C-section that I didn't want. I had a new partner living in my space because, again, my spouse and I had not shared living quarters. He was in the military at the time. He came home. He was lucky enough to have, he took the full pat leave and stayed home with our son while I went back to school to finish my nursing degree. And again, I'm looking at the date and I can't believe that it's been 10 years since that I graduated and finished that. And so needless to say, that kind of whirlwind did not go well. I had postpartum depression with psychotic features. Surprise, surprise. I, I got really, really sick. No one really knew what to do. I had a depression diagnosis before, so I kind of anticipated things would be tough, but the care team around me, everyone around me just didn't quite know what was going on because, again, the person I am is I can cover it up, I can mask it, I can do the things I need to do to get that gold star and then crumble and go bonkers behind closed doors. You know, I cut pieces of my hair out. Why did you end up having the C-section? Like, what was that situation? I had planned a home birth. I had, you know, the sheets on the bed. I was hardcore into, like, I didn't even have a hospital bag packed. That is how into the natural birth movement I was. And again, I that's kind of where I am now is on the opposite end of, of that spectrum because that setup didn't help me. So I accepted a stretch and sweep before 39 weeks at the suggestion of my midwives. And then at 39, no, so not even 39 weeks, I went into active labor. My water broke, there was meconium, and I was in labor for a really, really long time. Nothing really was progressing all that much. And so my midwife gave me the option of, do you want to keep laboring at home or do you want to go to hospital? And the geographical area I was in was my decision. I could either stay home and labor longer, go to the closer hospital, but not have my midwife as my primary care provider. Or I could leave now, drive a little bit further and go to another hospital where they would have full scope of practice. So I opted for the the latter. And once I got there, everything's like stopped. I had back labor. I had, you know, just those contractions that were keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, but nothing was really happening. And so I labored like that for like, I don't know, 17, 18 hours. And I got an epidural in the morning. And once I got, because I was exhausted, again, didn't want an epidural. So aside from going into hospital, having the other struggles, there was a lot of things that I just didn't want initially. And I didn't see as part of my, my path. And then by three o'clock that afternoon, I had a physician put their hand on my foot and say, well, you tried, but if nothing happens, we're going to have to have a C-section in the next couple of hours. And that was it. I never had an opportunity to actually understand what was happening. I was not in distress. The fetus was not in distress. He was tolerating labor like an absolute champ. Aside from the meconium at the beginning, which fast forward, all of my babies poop at 39 weeks. They all had meconium when my water broke at the exact same point. We went on to find my that I give birth to babies at 39 weeks. That's when I'm, I go. But so all of those kind of little pieces just added up and I was defeated and exhausted. And I had my, you know, my spouse there and my mom was there and everyone was tired and they all, you know, looked at me and said, yeah, you've tried really hard. And I ex- accepted and consented to the, the C-section. So it wasn't an emergency. It wasn't a scary event. It was a classic story of failure to progress. And for me, what it wasn't even the surgery itself. It was more so the recovery afterwards. My son was taken from me and he went with my husband and my mom while I waited in a recovery room by myself for a half an hour or 45 minutes. I don't remember seeing him for the first time. And my first thoughts, like my first, again, I was, I was awake out everything, but I, when I say conscious thoughts, I mean the, you know, the one that you're like, oh, that's what I thought about first. My lips were dry. And all I could think of is why hasn't someone given me chapstick? And the level of shame and guilt that I carried, that that first thought wasn't, where is my baby? Haunted me for so long. And 
then whenever I tried to talk about that, people would say, oh, but he, he was okay. He was with, you know, his dad or he was with his grandma. I said, but nothing was wrong with me. Like, why wasn't he with me? Why did you take him? Where did they take him? Yeah. Just down to the room where I was going to go after to stay. And nobody, like nobody thought to be like, hey, dad, mom, you guys can, here, he can sit even like, it just didn't make sense. But at the time, I wasn't in a place to advocate for myself. I had just had a major surgery. That wasn't my job to say, hey, brand new mom who just had a major surgery and brand new dad who thought his his partner might have died. I was fine, by the way, but my husband did not know that. And that is the part also that it wasn't our job to ask. It was their job to do it. And that is was kind of that starting point for me with my birth experience and what I opted to do with what I do now. Because I see myself as I was educated. I was in my third year of nursing. I was a birth nerd for years. I knew all of these things. But when it came to the actual experience inside the healthcare system, it was a whole different beast. And I now know there are ways you can navigate that and communicate and do things ahead of time and ensure other people in the space are aware of your needs and all of that stuff. So you are not left lying alone, wondering, you know, where the chapstick is and not spending it with your baby. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner... I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We wanna get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. And so many people, because I know one of the things we're going to talk about is birth trauma. And I think when people hear birth trauma, they think of these like big, dramatic things that could happen during labor or delivery, which that could be like an example of birth trauma. But just what you were saying, like having been separated from your baby, like I know one of my good friends was separated from her baby for a little while. And there was talk amongst the healthcare workers in the area about 
how there wasn't enough room in, I guess, I think her daughter had to go to the NICU for a little bit. And there wasn't enough room in that particular hospital. And so they were debating whether or not they had to move her to a different hospital. But my friend would stay in the hospital that she was in. And like just that experience like still bothers her. And that was like a huge, a huge, like she just remembers just being so afraid that they were going to take her baby to a different hospital. Like she didn't know what was going on. So it doesn't have to be this big, like dramatic thing that you would see on TV. It, it could be something that just seems like, oh, it was like a moment where you were unsure, but it's such a big deal when you're in the moment. And then it can be hard to get over that afterwards. Especially, right, if you're like, you don't have the vocabulary to even describe what it is. It's like this sensation of like, something's not right. I like to call it that icky feeling where you're like, oh, that's something's wrong, but I'm not sure. And what I say to birth processing clients is that your body remembers what happened. And that violation against like your personhood is just as real and just as traumatic as the violation against your physical person too. So when you're demeaned or you're dismissed, when you raise a, you know, a question and say, what about this? And they shush you. Those are attacks on your personhood and not you know, treating you as an adult. And those, those little pieces along the way, and then you combine it with any other kind of that power imbalance. And it's, it's so tough. I also tend to compare it to you know, the way we often think about sexual assault in the sense of you know, we often have this idea of it being this scary, traumatic, dark alley story, when in reality, we know that there are nonviolent experiences that may even exist in the context of a loving, caring relationship, but it still is wrong and it is still assault. But because we have this assumption of this is what it looks like, it's the big scary monster, you are really isolated then because you don't think your story is, you know, bad enough or traumatic enough, or you bring it up in a, a mom's group, for instance, they're like, oh, well, you're lucky, you know, I got this or, you know, I was stitched from here to there. And it's like, again, yeah, I'm sorry that happened. But for me, this is what haunts me. And we don't get to pick and choose what parts of those experiences stick. I always think in an ideal world, women would be giving birth in a center or like a place that is not the hospital. And it would just be like this magical place where the rooms are set up to be like so comfortable and have everything that they need and, you know, like beautiful bathtubs. And that is my dream as opposed to, I feel like when you go into a hospital, there's like a power imbalance and you feel like you have no control and like you're just waiting for instructions. Like, okay, what, what do I have to do now? It makes people nervous. Like, I don't know. Like, why exactly. yes, are we yes, giving birth all of the in above. hospitals? All of the above. Yeah. And I feel like it's set up the way it is now. And also we were going to talk about like inductions and people saying, oh, you have to have a C-section. We're going to schedule you on this day. Like not to be like maybe people will get upset at me for saying this, but a lot of how we do things in pregnancy, labor and delivery is so that it's easier on the doctors and that it fits in their schedule. And it's not the doctor's fault. Like it's the system that they work within, that they also make a lot of decisions to lead. But yeah, it's the system. And that is how they make their financial earnings. But they also, I have to say, also nurses play a big role in that too. When you think about how care is actually conducted and the fact that, you know, doctors aren't there managing your labor. And rarely do you actually, are you attended by the physician that you've seen throughout your pregnancy? Maybe, but it's not that common. Most places are on call schedules, which again, I think is a disservice that folks don't even know that the first appointment that they have is, hey, guess what? There is this percentage that I will be the delivering physician for you. People should know that from day one so they can prepare themselves for that for the day that it comes because it's a shock when it hits them. But that's an aside that, you know, 
And nursing staff are the ones making decisions. They're the ones calling the physicians to let them know when someone is ready. I don't know if you saw the a video circulating a while ago where the nurses were arguing with this woman who was standing up. Like literally you could tell by the look on her face and the noises she was making, like there was a baby like coming out, no questions. And the nurses are like, oh, you were just four centimeters. Well, okay, that's fair. But like, she's standing up doing this now. Like we need to address what's going on. But It is the system and the way it is set up. And the problem or the kind of that trick around, especially inductions, is something that I I really like talking about because it's not necessary a lot of the time. It is a lot of the time based on convenience and it is offered routine and it is offered as if it is part of normal care. That is my issue is that when things are presented like that, it makes it feel as if there is no other choice. Or if you were to make another choice, you're the oddball and you're going against the grain and you're trying to be difficult. Not that this intervention has no place to be here unless it is necessary. I also know many people are offered and talking about inductions before their 40 weeks. You know, people have inductions scheduled prior to that. And without appreciating the fact that there's significant risk to that intervention. Again, I don't mean that as like a fear-mongering piece or like no interventions. What I'm saying is without, like in a normal, healthy pregnancy that is putting along, there's no reason to have an induction at 40 weeks if you're not ready for it. Again, that does not mean if you want it for mental health reasons, Or I know you've, you know, if you're scheduling, you have family support and you can only have someone there within that window. Like, absolutely. But you need all the facts. You need to know what the chances are that this induction is going to end in a C-section before you even start it. Because your doctor knows that percentage and they know the likelihood. And so does the staff. But it seems as if the person who's actually going through it is kept in the dark. I will explain what my situation was. And I do find it interesting. So I had a really good pregnancy, no issues whatsoever, but around 36, 35, 36, 37 weeks, they were monitoring me really closely because Milo stopped growing. He just plateaued. And so I would go in for regular ultrasounds to see if he was growing at all. And he wasn't. So my OB, her thought was like, we need to get him out so that you can feed him in the outside world so he can start growing again. So I was like, okay. But so I was induced at 38 weeks on a Friday and my OB was on call on the Friday, which I'm assuming that's why obviously I was induced that day. Also, my husband's a physician, so the kind of agreement or because all the physicians work closely together, if you are a physician's wife or you're a physician yourself, they will make it a point to make sure that your OB delivers your baby just as like a nice gesture kind of. So I knew that she would be the one to deliver my baby regardless of when I gave birth. But then I was like, oh, it's interesting that I'm being induced on the day that she's on call. Do you know what I mean? Like, I get it. I get it. And like, people don't understand. And I always, I see the behind the scenes and I understand how it works because my husband is a specialist who is on call. And so I understand how it works. Like when I had surgery on my nose, I ended up with a complication, was bleeding in the hospital for like five days. The only ENT in all of Ottawa that could do, they tried everything and nothing was working. And the only ENT that could do the procedure that could stop the bleeding was on call whatever day. So I sat in the hospital bleeding from my face until he was on call to come do the surgery. Like, I'm not dumb. I understand that that's why I was waiting for five days to get the proper surgery. There's so many pieces that are behind the scenes that 
many people don't know, or like I said, even just the vocabulary, right? When you understand some lingo or you understand what on-call actually means, that gives you, you know, an advantage to navigating the system that most people don't have. And most people, like you said, you know, they have some already negative connotation or just like that fearful, you know, maybe not negative, but it's not their favorite place or that power imbalance of as simple as, you know, when you you ask questions in your prenatal appointments and how you're answered, what type of response you get? Is it is it a response or is it a, you know, are you, are you being pushed to the side? Are you being dismissed? Are you being treated as if you're a silly little girl who doesn't know any better and you got yourself pregnant and now here you are and I have to take care of you? And that kind of infantilization on grown-ass adults really, really sets the tone throughout that journey. So when you come down to the end of it and, you know, you're tired and you're really pregnant and your feet hurt and, you know, your family's coming and you go to that appointment, they say, you know what, we can induce you, you know, in a couple days if you want. It sounds really good. It sounds like a, you know, a great option, actually, instead of it being discussed for what it is as an actual intervention with risk to yourself, to the birth, and to the baby. And when it's not really shared that way and it only looks as a, a cherry on top of this hard, hard journey you've been on, it's hard to make a choice. But also, for in your case, there's reasons that we have it. And it's there for a reason. And there are times when absolutely it is the best choice or kind of, you know, the best choice out of the options you have. And my last, well, my first labor was augmented. My last one was as well. I've never been induced, but I've had Pitocin on board. And that's the other, I find funny. Sometimes people are like, you know, give me a list of 10 reasons why this intervention saved them or their baby. And it's like, again, I understand. I'm not saying they're not, not necessary, but If you're not making the decision for yourself, then it's pretty hard to know if it was or not. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. 
With birth trauma, I always think about how people that go through a miscarriage, infant loss, loss of a pregnancy, birth trauma, it always blows my mind how you go through something like that, extremely traumatic, and you're just sent home. Whereas like, I'm pretty sure my sister witnessed a car accident, like a really bad car accident. She was the first person on the scene. Like people, it was fatal. People had passed away. And I'm pretty sure she was offered services, therapeutic or speaking to a counselor, something like that. And it blows my mind how women go through really traumatic experiences when it comes to pregnancy, labor, delivery, and we're just sent home. And we're also, especially when it comes to birth trauma, like the birth of our children, it's marketed in such a way that it should be the best day of our lives. So there's this added pressure and almost like shame around, well, that was not the best day of my life. Actually, it was extremely traumatic and I'm suffering from that day. And so there's almost like a sense of shame of like bringing that up or acknowledging that. And so I feel like a lot of people probably live in silence when it comes to birth trauma, but it is so common and there's no resources for it as far as I know. I have a really awesome resource. That is why I actually developed a group birth processing program called Unbarrier Birth. And Unbarrier Birth is designed to help people unbury those exact feelings that you just described. Because when we do reach out for help, when we do try to talk about it, when we try to mention it, we are met with, like you said, that expectation that we should be happy. Oh, you have a beautiful, healthy baby. Be grateful it wasn't worse, this or that. We just push those feelings down and we bite our tongue to make other people feel comfortable. And we can do that in a million ways when we become new parents. Um, again, I've, the people in the birth space, right? People coming quickly to visit you at home. All of the ways that our boundaries are ignored and dismissed as new parents, that extends into the way we talk about our birth experience as well. And often people the first time they have ever had someone say that, you know, like what happened to you was really wrong and it should not have happened. Or I am so, so sorry that the day you gave birth is one of your worst memories. Sometimes it's the first time anyone has ever heard that. When we sit on a discovery call, like not even actually doing the work, it's just saying like, you're allowed to hate that day you are allowed to be angry. And again, it's like, you have to wonder, is it postpartum depression where you have that rage or is it actually being really angry about how you were treated or what that experience actually was and then not having the space to unload it and unpack it and truly understand what happened to you? Because again, like you said, your sister's experience, like there was formal structure to help debrief. If nothing else, people get to debrief. And I think that is a kind of a bare minimum, but we wait until six weeks and go back and see the same person who most likely violated us or is a part of the team that violated us and won't necessarily provide us with the entire picture. We know they will provide us with their perception, but most people, again, they don't even know that they're entitled to a copy of their full you know, hospital record from their stay. So they can understand what pieces of the puzzle happened. One example I really like to help people, I don't know if you've ever heard this kind of amongst people, but it's like, yeah, I got an epidural, I took a nap, and when I woke up, shit hit the fan. And, you know, I was in, I was 10 centimeters and the baby's heart wasn't going well or, you know, not responding well. And you look back at their hospital records and while they were napping, staff had been incrementally increasing the Pitocin and not informing the laboring person. So they napped through an increase in labor intensity, frequency of contractions, and progression of labor. So when they wake up, 
they aren't aware that that is the level of intensity that they're at. And they can be really, really overwhelmed and scared. And it can feel like it came out of like total left field. It's not even napping as well. It can be just, you know, when the nurse comes in, they're chatting and they're plugging away at the the IV pole and, oh, everything looks good and they leave, but they've increased the medication and they didn't tell you or ask you permission if you're comfortable with that. Because, you know, based on their practice standards, they are obligated to inform you every time a dose is changed. So you can make an informed decision if you want more or if you're good where you're at. And that, again, is their job in those moments to explain the benefits and risks of doing so. But what happens then is you get this layer of, oh, it was a traumatic birth. You had a C-section. You didn't want a C-section or you got an epidural and that's, oh, and you're disappointed. That's often a, a kind of phrase that people get. But when it's only allowed to be looked at under the lens in that six-week appointment with your OB or your midwife and never supported elsewhere, people often are left with a lot of unanswered questions that could really fill in the gaps for them and give some clarity around what happened. And I say we can't go back and change it, but we absolutely can understand it because it's not a, there's records of what happened to you and it went through a process. So we can figure that process out and figure out what happened when and, and how. So if women are listening who maybe they're pregnant for, you know, the second, third time, or there's women listening who are pregnant for the first time, what is your advice to women who are going to undergo labor and delivery soon? Like your advice to them so that they can kind of take charge and understand what their options are. Awesome. I think that is a fantastic question and a pretty loaded question, but I would start by, by finding, I really think the education piece is essential, but not all childbirth education or prenatal classes are the same. I really just, if nothing else, don't take the ones that your hospital or your midwife's clinic offers. Take something that is independent of them, not through public health, not the posters you see up in those offices. Look for sources or resources from individuals that have already experienced it and have found it helpful. That being said, on the opposite end of the spectrum, avoid all natural, you know, here's how you can avoid an epidural or no intervention birth, pain-free birth. All of those kind of things are equally as risky and may not offer a full picture of what to expect. Because again, like I said, you need to know what's happening in the hospital. I feel like those kinds of things like have a pain-free birth, like birth at home or whatever. As soon as you are dead set on having your birth go a specific way, you are setting yourself up for disappointment because it can go so many different ways. It's So much of what happens in labor and delivery will be out of your control, but you should understand what your options are. But as soon as you're like, yeah, I want it to go this way and it's going to be perfect, you're setting yourself up. What I really, thank you for kind of bringing it down here is I help people understand what their care expectations are instead of establishing birth preferences or a birth plan or you know, really what I avoid is a birth ideal. That's that vision of this is how it's going to be. And it's fixed and it's concrete. And when we go outside of that, it's really hard to cope and adjust. Whereas care expectations are understanding the context and the climate that you are going to be in when you're receiving care. And then you're going to establish how you want to be treated by the staff in that scenario. So It is not that I do not want Pitocin. I want no augmentation. No, what I want is the nurse to follow their ethical, you know, their practice standards, follow their code of conduct, provide me with the appropriate options available to me and allow me to make decisions for myself in that setting. And my decision might be that I want that medication or that intervention. My decision might be that I don't. It goes through really all of what I call the big five. So it's movement and restriction to movement, nutrition and fluids, 
Cervical checks is a big, big one as well, establishing how you want those to happen and in what context and when. So rather than focusing, like I said, on the things, you're focusing on the how and making that really loud and clear to yourself, to your primary care team, to your support person, and the moment you walk into whatever space that you are birthing in. My own birth, I, my final birth, I knew I was going to be delivering in a very VBAC hostile environment. And I scheduled a pre-labor conference with the social worker, the team lead, and my midwives and my husband to go over what my expectations were and to make sure that they were actually on my chart before I made it to the hospital. And then I put the onus on the unit to ensure I was staffed with nurses who could fulfill my care expectations. Otherwise, I was going to report them. And that was it. And there was no questions. I got really good staff. They respected what I wanted. They asked things in the way I needed. And someone said like, oh, like you're going to be that person? I said, damn right I am. I know that this is the only way I can guarantee this is how I will be treated well. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to beg. I'm not going to plead. I'm going to tell them I know what's up and this is how it's going to go. But the trick is you have to do that before you're in labor. You can't make this plan you know, as you're going to the hospital. This isn't a discussion for the night before when you think contractions are starting. This starts early, early on in your pregnancy. And you got to practice putting up those boundaries and establishing those expectations early on with everyone. Yeah, I always say like, spend less time decorating the nursery and more time preparing for labor delivery and early postpartum for sure. Yes. And early postpartum, I also include in that umbrella of birth trauma and the things that can happen during that time. Again, not to dismiss how incredibly important that time is too. For sure. So if people want more information on what you do, you have a website, where can people find you? And also what will they find on your website or if they wanted to work with you? I always suggest start on Instagram. It is the place I'm most active. I do have a website as well, which is thegoodbirthco.com. But if you're coming for learning and wanting to dive into kind of that content, what I do is I help people either process a birth they didn't want, prepare for the birth that they do want. And I also train doulas and other birth professionals to actually mitigate birth trauma before it happens and take action in protecting birth spaces for their clients rather than stand by as idle witnesses of the birth trauma. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me and finally getting connected. Also, thank you for asking me all of those questions about my new exciting slower life that has made a lot more space for this type of work. Are you looking for a podcast that'll make you laugh? You came to the wrong place. That's not us. That's not us. <laughs> well, it is. We are a husband and wife who chat about raw, real relationship yeah, topics. like sex. Like money. Like marriage and kids. But we're not afraid to talk about how your newborn baby probably isn't as cute as you think it is. If you're in need of entertainment while you're driving to work, because that sucks, we can join you in the suckage, kind of like being in your ear. Not physically. So if you want to laugh, come check us come out. Come check us out. Brought to you by the Laughing Couple Podcast. Ha <laughs> ha